Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is about Atlantic menhaden, or pogies, as the small schooling fish are known locally. If you've spent any time on the Maine coast in the last few years, you may have noticed the pogies' characteristic, slightly frenetic splashing close to the water's surface at the top edge of a darker patch of ocean, revealing a dense school of fish. Perhaps you've even seen seals nearby taking advantage of an easy lunch. When pogies are here, they let their presence be known. But they're not always here. Most Maine fishermen will tell you that the presence of pogies is cyclical, not in the annual migration sort of way, but years-long cycles where they're pretty much entirely absent until one spring, here they are again. In the last few years, after nearly 30 years of scarcity, pogies are back, and not just a few. Pogies have returned to Maine in numbers high enough to trigger a fishery that holds promise for many commercial fishermen. Their presence, everyone agrees, is particularly fortuitous these days because pogies have filled a bait void left behind by declining Atlantic herring stocks. Many lobstermen, scrambling for bait to feed their lobster traps, have turned to pogies. There are others in the Gulf of Maine who are happy to see Menhaden return, chief among them the predators like tuna, striped bass, bald eagles, and even humpback whales, all of which forage on pogies. On our show today, we'll explore the complex world of pogies and the impact its return to Maine waters is having on fishermen, fisheries management, and ocean food webs. We'll hear clips from three separate conversations, all of which were pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. First, a young fisherman from Booth Bay Harbor, Devin Campbell, who, a few years ago, started annually switching his boat's gear to take advantage of the pogie boom. Second, Dave Horner out of Southwest Harbor, who has fished for many different species in his nearly 50-year career and is rigging up to purse seine for pogies for the first time this year. And finally, we'll talk with Walt Golett, an assistant professor at the University of Maine School for Marine Sciences and lead of the Pelagic Fisheries Lab at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. A few things come up in today's interviews that could use some background. For example, you'll hear mention of the 17-barrel fishery. That's a reference to limits imposed by the fisheries management system for pogies. You'll also hear talk about gillnet gear and purse seine nets. The gillnets used to target pogies are small hanging nets that catch just enough bait for a lobsterman's own traps. Purse seines are also a net system, but one that's used to catch a larger volume of fish for when commercial fishermen sell the catch as bait to other lobstermen. Finally, you'll notice our interviewees using the words pogies and menhaden interchangeably. Don't get confused, they're one and the same species. 
Okay, let's get started with Devin Campbell. At 21 years of age, Devin Campbell was born and raised in Booth Bay Harbor. He's been ground fishing since he was a teenager. Ground fishing means harvesting fish species like cod, haddock, and hake. And in more recent years, Devin started fishing for pogies and is hoping to make pogie fishing his primary thing. I just asked him how he got into pogie fishing. Here's Devin Campbell. Well, there's a guy in town who was one of the first guys to rig up when they first showed up. Um, and I saw what he was doing. He was doing all right. And I'd always wanted to go seining. Um, so I started in 2018. I started going on here and seining and named the Prowler, my friend Steve Wood. Um, just from there, I kind of, well, next year I said, well, maybe I'll buy some gear. And bought some gear and bought another boat and rigged that out. And started 2019 as my first year in it. I didn't really get off the ground too early. I didn't make it for. I didn't really get fishing until the 17 barrel fishery kicked off. But you know, I always purchasing gear. I never used gillnet gear. Um, and you know, in 2020, I did 420,000 pounds in 10 weeks. As the fishery's gone on, there's less around. You know, every year there's less fish. The bunches aren't as tight, you know. I mean, it, it, the first year they were here, it was solid fish from the border all the way to, you know, Rockland. was about as far east as they got. And they've gone farther east every year. Uh, last summer, those guys in Blacks Harbor, New Brunswick, were actually catching them up there. So they went as far east as Canada. But, you know, it's changing changes all the time it's changed a lot since when it first kicked off there's not nearly as much fish around but are you sort of predicting that you'll get to fish for a few years and then you might have to take a pogey break for a bunch of years till they come back again is that kind of how the the old timers say it's timed that's how they say it works i don't know how it's going to work with warm and water temperatures but i mean it's just They've done it for 200 years that way, you know. So we'll see. I mean, it's there's never any guarantee. They might not show up this year. We don't know, you know. Um, and I think I think I think the love fish will be in a world of hurt if they don't. But I just I don't know. It's hard to say. You never know if they're going to show up. It's hard to predict them. You know, you kind of have to keep your gear and boat in check as to the idea they might not show up. You know, you can't spend crazy money on doing it because then well they didn't show up this year yeah what do you have to do to your boat to keep it ready and geared up to go pogey fishing uh, so when i get set up you know of course you got a mast and boom uh you normally have a ma actually a mast and two booms you have a we call a picking boom or a brailing boom for taking fish out of the net then you got a big boom with your power block on it your power block hauls the, hauls the net in. And the net, I mean, most of your gear work and getting ready is keeping your keeping your net in shape, you know, fixing broken hangers on the head rope, foot rope, you know, mending up holes, building a new net. I did that last year from scratch, you know. it's But you want to keep your costs down because, well, what if they don't show up this year, you know? So it's all kind of the gear I had and the boat I had when I was, really going at it was uh it wasn't really you know the most expensive boat in the world if you know what i mean and that pretty much sums up most of it's just gear work working on your working on your saying to keep keep it ready and keep it fishing 
And can you describe for folks who have never seen one how a stain works? So you might be a little bit familiar with a coin purse. Um, Essentially, so I call it a purse stain because you pretty much, you have floats on the top. It's a rectangular piece of net with floats on the top and leads on the bottom and also rings on the bottom. And then you have a purse line that runs through those rings. And you set that piece of twine around the fish in a circle, meet your other end and pull on both sides of the purse line and close the bottom. So you essentially, you're getting everything that's in between them. So if you get them fish in the middle in there, you're getting them. Then you use your power block and you power block back for, you know, we have like, you know, my my gear was a 75 gear. I had a 75 by 8 net. We used to, uh, you know, you'd, be hauling back about five minutes, and then then you got the fish right up tight, and then you start doing what we call drying them up. And when you're drying them up, you bring your dory alongside, which is what you put all your barrels in, carry your fish around, and you put them all, you, you know, you get them dried up, you pull that t- twine right tight, and you get the fish tightened right up so you can get that fit net in there and scoop them out easy. And you just scoop them right into the barrels that are in the dory or on the boat, depending on how you do it. I always use dories because my boat was a little bit too small to carry 17 barrels fish. But that's pretty much the process. You do that until you have your limit. So. And then where do they go? Where do you bring them? I So when I went, I used to sell them right to a bait dealer here in town. Um, a lot of guys will sell them, you know, private sale right to, uh, you know, right to individual loves fishermen um i always sold them a bait dealer you know every fish that comes ashore here goes to bait there's okay. not a single one i mean pretty much every fish every pogey that gets caught in maine new hampshire massachusetts and rhode island comes up here to go for loves to bait so and when you're when you head out to go pogey fishing um how do you know where to go I I always used to go the night before and go riding and go find them. You know, there, okay. there's certain places they always hang out. You know, they're all I I never seen them on the rock the rock you know the rocky bottom too much. They're always right out in the mud. They like you know four or five fathom mud pretty much. They don't stray too far from that. So if you've got somewhere you've got shallow mud like those big mud coves down east, or you know like we have West Harbor over here where it's just and normally just there, you know, you can work on them the same place for four weeks, and they'll move a little bit. Might spend a day finding them. As season goes on, it's harder to find them, or it's harder to get bunches that are big enough. You know, big enough to be worth setting on, but you'll see them doing what we call flipping, where they'll come up and slap their tail on the surface. Sometimes they'll come up, and you'll see them just thinning a little bit, and it'll look like little boat weights going along. But sometimes, I mean, they won't even do that, and you'll just have to look for color. You know, you'll see the color of them in the water. You know, sometimes you got to go sit in the cold for a while. Just sit there, the engine shut off about 10, 15 minutes. You might see one flip, and then you work your way over towards it, shut down again, listen, watch, and then, then you can get them. But they're not, they don't always show it on the surface, but that's a pretty typical sign, you know, if you're out there just looking around, you'll normally, and normally you'll find them flipping right on the surface, so. Cool. What do you love about it? Uh, I like running on fish. That's not my favorite thing to do, you know, engine rate wide open, just setting on them. You know, you got one guy counting rings in the stern, running the net out, you know. It's, it's getting the net back, 
that's about my favorite part. About from when she crosses the stern to when it when you get them right back and get them dried up and get ready to start brailing. That's what my favorite part about it. You know, it's just there's not much that compares to the excitement of that. You know, that sounds really cool. Um, tell us a little bit um, about how they're managed. So uh, when it started, it, it was a completely open race, pretty much. Um, state had a 120,000-pound weekly limit. Um, there were 15 or 20 license holders that fished the first year. And every year since that, it's gone up. And Maine catches its state allotment normally within about two or three days. And then we oh. apply for something called the episodic event set-aside, which is meant for states that have, you know, like a – like us, so we don't get a lot of quota, but we have fish that show up kind of not, they're not here every year. Um, and after we burn that up, we catch that in about a week normally. Then we go to the small scale fishery, which is um, essentially it's made off of an incidental possession limit of 6,000 pounds. In Maine, we define that as 17 barrels of fish, and that's where most of the fish are caught. Maine has a 2 million pound state quota. And then we work on that. We normally get about half of that episodic event quota. That's 4.3 million. So we get like another 2 million out of that. And then, oh, lately Maine's been touching upwards of 15 million during the, the 17 barrel fishery. And how many of you are there? In like, how many Maine fishermen do you think are going after pogies? Uh, about 380. I think it was 380 okay. active license holders last year. Um, what are you hoping for this season? Uh, I mean, I I hope they show up. You know, I think even not just for me. I mean, I think the lost fisher will be in a world of hurt if they don't. You mm-hmm. know, if they don't show up, I don't know what we're going to do for bait with the heron cut. You know, there's no, and I mean, also too, I mean, all the heron saners been put out of business, so I don't really know. Even if they did come back, how we get bait? So we're kind of kind of relying on these things, you know. I mean, if, if they don't show up, you'll, you'll see five hundred dollar bait barrels. So when do you usually start looking for them? Oh, uh, well, you know, first of June normally you start trying, you mm-hmm. know, looking for them. They were here last year. There was a round of them that was here twenty fourth of May. You know, of course, it was three weeks before we could go. The state put a limit on it, and they they put that in so. Those guys down east advocated for that limit so that they could get in on it. But, you know, I mean, it was every year, like before, I was, I think I caught my first fish here, 4th of June in 2020. Uh-huh. I mean, they show up right around that 1st of June. There's a, whenever that first full moon comes around, about two days before, you'll start to see them working their way up in here just a little bit. You'll see them down, you know, 20, 30 fathom of water, just, just sitting there on bottom. You'll see giant bunches of fish. And then, you know, the next night you'll go, the night before the moon, you might see them a little bit closer, you know, 10, 15 to 10 fathom of water. And then normally that night of the moon, you'll come up and they'll be flipping right up in the cold. So. Very cool. It, it must feel in some ways really different than ground fishing. How does it compare to ground fishing? Uh, I mean, it, it you know, it, you know ground fishing, you know, I, I steam four hours to go do anything, you know. It's, here, when you're pokey fishing, you can just go right out. You know, Christ, I steam across the harbor. I was five minutes from the dock, and I'm like, you know, get your fish. And when I was really going at it two years ago, you know, we had we would leave at about five, 
We were normally sent out by 5.36, hauled back and everything in the dories and ready to go home by 7. And normally we got in unloaded and everybody was back in the trucks by 8 o'clock, you know. I mean, ground fishing is a 22-hour day, Dr. Doc. So it's a big difference okay. to me. If I can go do that and make a little money, it's a lot. And especially the price of fuel is a lot, a lot better. I mean, I mentioned earlier I like to talk a little about the management side of it. Um, yeah. I, I think that there's too many people in it, honestly. That's that's my biggest thoughts about it right now is they just let everyone go. And it's not there's not enough quota to support it. You know, the, I don't think the other states are very happy with what we do. You know, I mean, we've essentially turned an incidental possession limit into a fishery. You know, it's just, it's, I don't know. It, I don't know what the answer is because we need to get, we need to have access to bait. But, I mean, there's a certain point where there's too many people in the fishery and the fish are getting depleted. You know, every year they everybody's, oh, geez, they left real early. Well, no, you caught them up too early. Uh-huh. You know, the first year they were here, they were here till October. And the second year it was September. And the third year was August, and it's been earlier into August every year that they leave here. I know down east they hang around a little bit, a little bit longer, but it's just there's so many people going now that they don't get, they don't last too long when they're here. What would, uh, what would that look like to limit them? Well, I mean they they are limited. You know, the state just passed that bill um, requiring landings. When it when they started that bill out, I thought it was a good idea. The way they did it was good, but then a bunch of people got in the legislature and changed the bill around, so it essentially did nothing to do, you know, it didn't limit anything. You know, they wanted to do, they wanted to implement what's called a control date, and with a control date, you set a, normally with a control date in a fishery, you set that date as a date in the past. You had to go on and had landings by this date. But they're setting it in the future, and they're giving everybody a chance to get land this year. So no one's going to – it's not going to do anything. You know, this after this year, there'll be no more license created, but you're not getting the light, the too many licenses that are in it now out. And that's where the that's where the struggle is. And I understand everybody wants to go, but I don't know. The state of Maine has done this thing for a while now where they'll – instead of letting 40 people make a living at it, they'd rather make – you know, they'd rather let – a hundred people go make a few bucks. You know, I, I don't, I personally believe, you know, I'd rather like to see somebody just go make a living in it. That's what he does. That's what I'd like to do. So I tried to do, but then they just kept changing it around. Now it's an accessory fishery, you know. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. Our show today is about Atlantic Menhaden, or pogies, as we commonly refer to them here in Maine. All our interviews today were pre-recorded earlier this month, so we won't be taking any calls. That was Devin Campbell that I was just talking with, who fishes out of Booth Bay Harbor. And as his interview revealed, the management of the pogie fisheries is complex. Rules and regulations are implemented by several fisheries management bodies, and here in Maine, state rules can be set and changed by the state legislature. Pogies are especially complicated because neither the fish nor the fishermen are evenly distributed throughout the state. Pogies move into Maine from the south as early as May and take a while to move up the coast. The start date for the fishery is now set at June 15th to allow the fish to disperse into the eastern reaches of the state and give Downeast fishermen a chance to fish as well. 
To give you a little more context, it's fairly common in fisheries management when it's time to impose new or stronger limits on a fishery to start by establishing who can fish and how much they can fish based on what's called a fisherman's landing history or how much they have harvested in the past. The recent bill change that Devon was referring to states that as of next year, 2023, anyone who wants a license to fish commercially from Menhaden has to have history from any two of the three years between 2019 and 2021. An important addition is that the bill extended the date for proving the minimum 25,000 pound quota history to this year, 2022. As a result, more Maine fishermen are expected to rig up now to target the quota, which will ensure that they can keep their license for pokey fishing into the future. Okay, back to our interviews. We'll hear from a fisherman down east in the second half of the show, but first, let's wrap up with Devin from Booth Bay Harbor. I just asked him if his perspective that fewer people should be able to enter the commercial fishery is common, and here's what he said. I think it's kind of common again, you know, from especially the guys that you know from the western here, western mm-hmm. part of the state. You know, I've talked to a lot of guys that say, you know, well, I mean, there's a lot of people that was pretty mad about that, that you know, June fifteenth rule because you know that meant that they were kind of, you know, we had to share it with guys down east that had only been going for a year and we'd been doing it for four years at that point, five years, you know. Like I said, I don't really know what the answer is. I just know that what's going on is not right. I think that's a pretty common sentiment right there. I think you get just about anybody would agree with you on that one. I don't know if I, you know, I have my own personal ideas about management, but I don't think those represent everybody. I think there's a fair amount of people that it represents, but, you know, like those guys at the Easter saying everybody should be able to go. I think everybody should go get a few barrels for lobster bait, but I think the commercial side of it needs to be changed in some regard. When you say the commercial side, that's going out and then, catching the 17 barrels and, and bringing them back and selling them to, to lobstermen or a dealer versus a lobsterman just going out and getting a few barrels for their own bait. Is that the distinction? Yes, that's the distinction. So Maine allows you to have a license. Um, they call it the personal use license where you can go catch three barrels any day of the week, any time, as long as you use Gilnet gear. And I think that, that that's a perfect solution for a lot of people. But I just think the commercial side of it needs to be changed around a little bit because what's going on right now just definitely isn't working. It's not good for the resource. It's not good for the people that are in it. You know, you're creating a situation where people can spend a lot of money and, you know, not get, not really get anything. That was Devin Campbell, a fisherman out of Booth Bay Harbor. As you've been hearing, management of the pokey fishery is complex. This is in part because the arrival of the fish in different parts of the coast is staggered, while at the same time, the cyclical presence of the species remains unpredictable from year to year. In the end, the new regulations affect fishermen differently up and down the coast. So let's hear now from someone further down east, Dave Horner out of Southwest Harbor. Dave has targeted many species in his nearly 50-year career as a fisherman, including, in the last few years, gill netting for pogies for his own lobster bait. This year, he's rigging up a purse seine to get the quota required for next year's pogie license. 
In this conversation, Dave explains the difference between gill nets and seine nets used for pogie fishing, the difference between hard bait and soft bait used for lobster fishing, and the reasons behind he and his son's efforts this year to secure their landings history for pogies for the future. A side note, in this short interview, I was talking with Dave while he was working on his boat in Southwest Harbor, so there's a little background noise, especially in the beginning, that hopefully won't be too distracting. Here's Dave Horner, 61, a lifelong fisherman out of Mount Desert Island. Well, I've been fishing my whole life. My name's David Horner. I'm 61. Um, I've spent most of my life lobster fishing, scalloping, shrimping, and ground fishing. But I have done other things for a little bit. And pogie fishing is one we've played around with for a few years with gill nets. But now they've passed a new rule that if you don't land 25,000 this year, you won't be able to keep the license. So we're putting a seine, we're rigging our bigger boat with a seine to, uh, which is a surround type net. And so we can surround the school of them and catch a lot more. And you, um, you have, so, so you're just getting started, it sounds like, in pogie fishing. Well, like I say, we've done it with gill nets on kind of a fun basis just to get bait, you know, to use for ourselves. But so this will be a little more serious version of it, yeah. So, yeah, in order to keep our licenses, we're going to gear up with a seine and, and uh, get more serious landings. But it's, it's something we wanted to move into anyway. With the keep cutting the herring quota, you know, lobster bait's a real problem for the lobster industry. And so yeah. if we can catch our own bait or catch enough to sell, and so be it locally. You know, I mean, the pogies are here. Nobody wants to eat them, so we might as well do something with them. And for for folks who don't have a good grasp on the different kinds of fishing, could you describe the different gill netting? You've tried gill netting, and now you're moving into seining. Um, yeah, I mean, just gill netting for pogies is all we were doing. It's a net that they get tangled up in. And it floats on top of the water and goes down about six or eight feet. And then the school of pogies runs into it. And they get tangled in it. And then you pull it in and pick them out of it. But that's, you know, a way to get a few trays. But with the seine net, you actually run it off the stern of the boat and surround them. And then purse the bottom, pull it tight so it closes in under them. And then pull the net into the boat. And they're all trapped there. And you, you know braille them into the boat with a dip net. So it's two and different so, types of fishery. And so you're heading towards seine netting because you'll be able to catch different well, higher numbers of fish and get the quota that, that you need in order to keep your life. Right. Is that a wait catch way more that way, yeah. How long how long have you been have you been doing it? I know with gill netting, when did you start catch, oh. catching some with the gill nets? Five or six years ago, we just started noticing there's more and more of them all the time, and lobster bait keeps getting more pricey, so it was like, hey, let's see if we can catch a few for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we did. But now we're going to catch great. a lot more. And why do you think, what's your, you've been on the water around here for a long time, it sounds like, what's your sense of like, what are you observing, and why do you think they come back and then go away for a while? Oh, I think everything in the ocean is cyclical um everything comes and goes everything i've ever seen gets better or worse better or worse back and forth that's just the way the ocean works 
And so you've noticed that the pogies have been here again for the last few years. Yeah, but I remember 30 years ago seeing boats load up right off the Coast Guard base. So, I mean, they've been here plenty in the past. And the extent to which they're here continuously, I don't think anybody's paid that much attention. I mean, I didn't. Now we just started looking for them in the last few years, but herring was plentiful for lobster bait, so nobody really cared about the pogies. Now they won't let you catch any herring, so the plan is to get our own bait and have extra to sell to others. I mean, herring now for lobster bait is over $100 a tray. Herring, if you can get it, is a, is a dollar a pound at least. It's a lot. Just two cents when I was a kid. And how much do you use, say, in a week? How much do you need? Lobstering? Um, yeah. I don't go that hard anymore, but you would use, oh, 15, 20 trays, easy enough. Okay. Tell me a little bit about the, the regulations have changed, so now you need to be able to have a – you need to prove a certain amount that you've harvested in order to keep your license, right? Right. Well, they just – they passed a control date on the licenses, and we had been buying the license all along, but they also added the the clause that you had to land a certain number of pounds in a year, which we hadn't. So we got this year to do it, and otherwise we'd lose the license. And when you said that you're now rigging up, what does that what does that look like? Like, what are you doing to your boat to rig it up to be able to go seining? Uh, there's this, this big block that turns called a power block. That's what pulls the net back aboard the boat. And you need a small boom to brail them aboard with the dip net I was telling you about. And the other thing you need is the net itself, the same, which is quite a large piece of equipment. So we're taking scallop stuff off the boat, getting ready for you know a different fishery, taking one set of stuff off and putting another on. And where where will you go? Well, last year there was plenty of pogies right here in the harbor, so hopefully not too far. But if we have to travel to get them, we will. But that's yet to be experienced. Yeah, right. You're going to figure that out. What are you looking for? What do you see on the water that makes you think, ah, this is where we've got to do it? Yeah, you see a dark spot, just a big black area and a little bit of flipping tails and stuff. And they don't hide very good. You can see them on the sound machine. You can see them with your eyes. Some people use drones in the school. And have you seined historically for other species? I have never done it. This can be all new, which is kind of fun. At 61, I don't, it's hard to find something new, but. Found it. <laughs> so looking forward to it. But my son goes with me. He's had the license for years too. So we have a mutual interest. I don't care as much about me, but I make sure he doesn't lose his license. So everything in fisheries now is limited this, limited that. Oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. So everybody tries to keep every door open they possibly can, no matter what it takes. Yeah, and it sounds like increasingly finding sources of bait is just so important for the lobstermen and for the dealers who are selling to the lobstermen. There's guys down around Harpswell, I got some friends, where three or four of them all go out on the one day a week. 
they all go out and they get their 17 barrels of pogies, which is the limit. You're allowed 17 barrels a day. And one day a week, they all go on the boat, they all go get it, and they all have bait for the whole week. You know, it's a pretty good system if you can make it work. How much is in a barrel? About 400 pounds. Okay. I was reading about bait recently, and, and there was a reference to hard bait. Can you describe bait a little bit? Well, it, it's not an exact term, but hard bait, I don't know. Some people would refer to pogies as a hard bait, but generally speaking, a soft bait is what you put in a bait bag, and hard bait is what you put on a string. Like picture if you caught a codfish and flayed it, and you had the carcass left, you would string that on, not put it in a bait bag. So that would be hard bait. You know, you know what I mean by string bait on. Like in the bait, in the trap, you have a bait bag and you have a bait string. So hard bait you put over the string, and soft bait you put in the bait bag. But like I said, it's not an exact. I some people would probably call pogie soft, and some would call it hard bait. I guess. And it might be a personal preference from the lobstermen, whether they literally put the pogies in a bag or hang hang the rack. Is that is that true? Yeah. I mean, because it's not a rack with a pogie because you haven't uh-huh. filleted. It's still got all the meat because there's no market for the meat. Um, the lobstermen up and down the coast don't all do the same thing with bait. And, uh, you know, I... Guys down around Portland haven't used bait bags for years. They just string everything on. And down east here, you see still see more bait bags, but it still varies. That's so interesting. So, for example, redfish maybe, that, that would be more the, the fillet goes to market and then the rack can be used as, as bait. That would be the best example of hard bait would be redfish rack, yeah. And herring would probably be the best example of soft bait. I mean, I don't know anybody that would try to string on herring. Herring would always go in a bait bag. But anyway, yeah, bait is a major expense. Me personally, I want to do this to have some independence from that and uh, do something I haven't done before. And so. That was Dave Horner, who's fished for nearly 50 years out of Southwest Harbor. If you're just tuning in, you've been listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Our show today was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. We're talking today about pogies, the schooling fish that are also known as Atlantic Menhaden. Our first two conversations featured two different fishermen, one out of Booth Bay Harbor and one out of Southwest Harbor. The first one shared that he felt that entry to the pogie fishery should have been more strictly limited, while the second is working hard right now to secure his and his son's future in this fishery. While on the surface it might sound like the fisherman's geography puts them at odds, it's important to note that both fishermen are clearly interested in sustaining the longevity of this fishery and both emphasize its critical importance as bait for the state's iconic lobster fishery. Pogies are also important as a food source for many other species in the ocean. Food web dynamics between multiple migratory species who are each targeted commercially can be incredibly complex and unpredictable. 
To gain some perspective, we turn next to a research scientist who focuses on some of the pogies' chief predators, including the highly migratory fish species such as Atlantic bluefin tuna, swordfish, and sharks. Our final interview today is with Walt Golett, an assistant professor at the University of Maine School for Marine Sciences and lead of the Pelagic Fisheries Lab at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. Walt talks about the role that species like Menhaden play in the ocean ecosystem, and in particular, how his team's research on Atlantic bluefin tuna reveals the increasing importance of pogies as a prey source in the Gulf of Maine. Like our previous two guests, Walt explains that the arrival of the pogies in the last few years is particularly fortuitous in light of the Atlantic herring's decline as a forage fish. Walt starts by giving us an overview of the scope of his research on species like tuna and how his lab's work informs the management of commercially harvested species. Here's Walt Golett. First of all, thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to talk with you and it's, it's always great to share the information that we're getting in the, in the lab and the research that we do. So my name is Walt Golett. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine in Orono. Uh, a little bit unique with my position is that instead of being on the Orono campus, I'm actually based at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute in Portland, Maine, uh, myself and one other faculty member. And uh, this, this positions me quite well for the research uh, that I do. And um, we also work with colleagues, not only on the UMaine campus, but also here at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. So it makes for a great working relationship and really leverages the strengths of both of these institutions. That's great. Um, and you study tuna and other highly migratory species. Tell us a little bit about the species you study. Sure thing. Yeah, you, you said it correctly. So my lab and many other labs around the, the different ocean basins study what we call highly migratory species or highly migratory animals. And when we're talking about fish, that generally applies to the, the group that you just suggested. So the tunas, things like Atlantic bluefin tuna, Pacific uh, bluefin tuna, southern bluefin tuna. Uh, but it also includes things like the billfish, so marlins and swordfish. It includes many species of sharks. So there's this whole group or suite of animals that we consider as highly migratory. And the reason that we call them highly migratory is that they travel extensively across ocean basins. And they're really amazing animals because their physiology has adapted over time to, to really allow them to utilize these, these, these just amazing um, regions of the ocean, not only wide distributions. So if you're looking at a two-dimensional map, you can think of a large portion of that ocean that's actually occupied. But, but if it was 3D, you would also see the depth to which these animals can actually occupy. So it's a really, really big um, ecological niche that these individuals um, are occupying all across the globe, not just here in the Atlantic Ocean or not just here in the Gulf of Maine. Um, so tell us a little bit about the scope of your research with sure. species. Yeah, sure. So I, I like to tell people that the, the main motivation of our lab's research is in an applied context. In other words, anything that we extract, it doesn't have to be marine, it can be terrestrial, but any, in any animal population that you're physically extracting or you're adding a level of mortality to that population, 
you need to basically get an understanding of how well or poor that population is doing so that you know how many of them you can take out of the population. And so our lab focuses on things that we consider life history parameters or life history variables. So we study age and growth of fishes, how old the fish get, um, what's the average age of the population? Is, is that changing? How do we see more young individuals or more older individuals? How fast do the fish reach a particular size? That particular size might be related to when they're reproductively active. That may in turn be used to set minimums, minimum lengths, for example. You know, you don't want to kill a fish before it's had a chance to spawn. We do a lot of foraging ecology work, so we look to see what these big predators are eating. And the re one of the reasons that we do that is because, and, and we, we know this to be true now, um, many of the species that these top predators forage on are they themselves a commercial or a commercially harvested product. And so the idea there is you just want to know who's eating who and that you leave enough in the water for the predators. But at the same time, you try to maximize the amount of fish that you know we want to take. So if you have a commercial uh, pogey fisherman or Atlantic Menhaden fisherman, you know, we really want to try to maximize both of those things. We want to extract as much of that resource as we can, but at the same time, we also know that it might be an important food source. And so you leave it in the water so that another group of fishermen can target those, those big predators that are coming here to eat. Um, we do some, we also do some work on energetics, looking at um, the condition of fish and how well or how poor they might be feeding, for example, to get an idea of how the, the Gulf of Maine is doing from an ecological perspective. So that's just a kind of a short snippet of some of the things that, that we do. Um, and we work with lots of labs around the Atlantic. And um, I have so many questions. That's okay. Uh, Keep them coming. <laughs> how, so, so you mentioned um, studying how old they get, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Give us a sense of like with tuna. How old do they get? Um, and I'm curious, do they change what they eat at different stages in their life cycle? Sure. Okay. So I'll address the first one. So how long do they live? If they can dodge the gauntlet of death, as I call it, and that is, by, by the way, that is all aspects of mortality. That's not just people. Uh, you have to keep in mind that 99.999 repeating percent of the eggs that are spawned by a, by a, a female bluefin will never live long enough to recruit to the population. That's just the way their life history is. But for the ones that do survive and the ones that can, again, dodge the predators and dodge the people and so forth, we feel that Atlantic bluefin probably reach an age of about 40 years old. Now, the second question, do they change their diet? Absolutely, we call it, we call it an ontogenetic shift in foraging. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, what they can actually fit in their mouth. And it also, as they get older, has to do with what's available to them to eat where they are at that particular time. So if you're a really small bluefin, not only do you have a small mouth, but you're also not likely to go as far north your first year of migration. So you may not be exposed to the same types of food. You might be limited to things like sand lance, for example. Um, that are more prevalent along the southern portions of the New England coast and the mid-Atlantic. Um, we do have sand lance here in the Gulf of Maine, but I'm just using that kind of as an example. 
as those tuna grow and they can go further north on their migratory patterns, you know, you might see more things like Atlantic herring or more species of squids, um, uh, Atlantic menhaden or pogies, as, as we all call them up here. So you will see changes, yes, for sure. You'll see changes in what they eat by age. And what are, their, what are some of the foods that they do eat? So there have been several diet studies that have taken place here in the Gulf of Maine since about the 1970s. They've been rather spaced out. It's been difficult to keep this time series going sort of every year. And so what you're looking at are kind of snippets. But I can tell you from those snippets that up until recently, the most important diet item in their bellies has always been Atlantic herring. That has been the, their sort of, let's just call it their go-to prey species. It has, that's been what's occupied the, what we call the majority of the weight of the stomach. So in other words, if you were to bring in a bluefin stomach and weighed all the contents in the stomach separated out by species, Atlantic herring would dominate that time and time and time again. However, many people know and realize that the Atlantic herring stock is not doing so well. Um, you know, we noticed that from the assessment, we noticed that because the commercial industry is now struggling. And so, interestingly, a grad student of mine, Sammy Neto, who just graduated her master's, did a, a fairly comprehensive diet study on bluefin. And what she found were some really interesting changes. Number one, Atlantic herring is no longer that dominant prey item, which you would expect, because if it's not there in as great in numbers because the population's down, the bluefin are going to have to find something else to eat. And it's very fortuitous that in the years that the herring have actually declined, the bluefin have been able to switch prey a little bit. And so now squids, cephalopods, make up a much bigger part of their diet. But interestingly, we also see things like pogies are now much more prevalent in the diet uh, than they had been in the last couple of decades. Uh, we also interestingly see things like river herring. So river herring are actually being forged upon by Atlantic bluefin tuna, which is really interesting. I don't think they're seeing river herring in the diets of many other species, like some of the gadids and so forth, but tuna are eating them. So my take is that, you know, they're available and they're, they must be available in greater numbers because their proportions in the diet are starting to increase. And they will eat other things, by the way. I, I wouldn't put much in front of a bluefin without the expectation that they wouldn't eat it. <laughs> um, you know, they'll eat ground fish. They'll eat uh, pretty much everything. But in terms of preferred prey, for sure, Atlantic herring used to be their preferred prey, and now it seems to be switching a little bit. In terms of tuna as a sort of a high-level predator, mm -hmm. when what tuna eats changes, how does that have an impact in the remaining sort of trophic system, the whole food system? What's the connection there? So a couple of things I would say. Um, number one, you know, Atlantic herring is an exceptionally important species here. It's, you know, we, we because I'm looking strictly through the lens of HMS, you know, we see its importance in the diet of bluefin. But the reality is, is that herring at different life stages is important for ground fish, it's important for spiny dogfish, it's important for marine birds, it's important for sharks, it's important for marine mammals. It's, it's really this like central forage, if you will. And so when its numbers go down, not only does it impact the tuna, but it can impact the entire Gulf of Maine ecosystem, all the animals that, that feed on it. When you see these changes in the, like for example, in the condition of the fish, um, that can mean a couple of things. One is that that food source 
has either changed, either you know the the, the predator is switching to something else, um, or it's not there and in great as great of numbers. And that impact, like I'd mentioned before, can have a kind of a, a big impact on the life history or the biology of the fish, and it can have a big impact on the fishery um, as well because you get you'll get potentially reduced economic uh, returns. You also could have impacts on the population, and so you might see that the population is not doing as well anymore and you have to ratchet, you know, quotas have to be ratcheted down to accommodate for things like that. Um, but understanding foraging ecology really gives you a good window, not only to, to who's eating who, but kind of the connections, you know, that these forage fish have for not just tunas, but for the entire uh, Gulf of Maine uh, population of animals, really. Mm -hmm. And if you are noticing in the recent past, a switch from herring to other species like squid and like pogies, yep. also known as medhaden. Um, yep. You're you're kind of in new territory. It sounds like we are. We are. There's a couple of things to remember. Um, Atlantic, which sometimes, depending on how old you are, <laughs> you may or may not know. So Atlantic menhaden are not what you would call a new species to the Gulf of Maine. They have been here in great numbers in the past, but there was a, they took a little hiatus, I guess I'd call it, a little vacation from the Gulf of Maine. And we didn't have them for a long time. But now, you know, over the last several years, they've shown up in abundance. And um, when you have the loss of one species, which is a, a primary forage species, one of the first things that comes to mind is that, uh-oh, this may have a big impact on the predator because it no longer can find that, that primary prey item. And the other thing that I would note about these small pelagic fish is that they are they are what we call a high energy or a lipid rich forage. So not all food is created equal. It's the same thing in human terms, right? Like if I was to say, okay, I'm going to put you on an island for five months and you're allowed to choose 25 things to eat over that five months, chances are you're not going to go for the salad, right? You're going to want something that has a ton of calories in it. So let's just say like double cheeseburgers all around or something. You know, it's a simple analogy, but the same thing holds true in the Gulf of Maine. Not all animals have the same caloric value to them. So, for example, groundfish, skull, you know, sculpins, cods, haddocks, hakes, they don't have gram for gram, pound for pound, kilo, kilogram for kilogram, however you want to measure it. They don't have the same what we call energy density or calories per unit that things like Atlantic herring or um, Atlantic menhaden do. Um, and again, at first glance, if you lose that Atlantic herring, you might say, uh oh, you know, things are things. This is not good. The alternative to that is something comes in and takes its place, maybe not entirely. It might not fill the role entirely, but it has the potential to do that. Sammy's work looked at this a little bit. And what she did is she actually measured the caloric value of different prey species that bluefin forage on in the Gulf of Maine. And what she found is that Atlantic menhaden are about the same, on about the same caloric content per unit as Atlantic herring are. Sometimes they're a little bit higher. And so the question, the question then is, you know, could this be an alternative food source for bluefin and might it fill in a gap? Maybe it doesn't fill that gap entirely and it might not. Um, but if it at least can partially fill that foraging gap, that would be a good thing. Because here's the alternative and here's kind of the scary part of this. Whether you're talking tunas or marine mammals 
or the sharks. All of these organisms are here with one thing in mind. They want to eat, they want to eat a lot, and they want to put on as much weight as possible. Because in nature, fats are king. That's what you want is all that energy. If that prey base goes away, the predators will not stay here. They're not going to, you know, we kind of equate it a little bit to gaming theory, win, stay, lose, leave, right? In, in simplistic terms, if you're winning, and in the case of a predator, you're foraging, you're acquiring food, you're winning. If you stay in the same area and there's no food, no food, no food, they're not going to stick around. They're going to be gone. And from here to the Canadian border is a hop, skip, and a jump for a bluefin. I mean, a bluefin can go from Gloucester to Yarmouth or Portland to Yarmouth and, you know, in a day. That's nothing for them to do. And if that happens, you know, we're not allowed to fish over international borders. So in effect, it could shift the distribution and that would cause a big problem. So it is really important to make sure that that prey base is available to, to not just tuna, but, you know, everything in the Gulf of Maine, because it's kind of like Jenga. You can start to pull out the blocks one at a time, but eventually one of them is going to be the load bearing pin. And that, you know, that could cause much larger problems. So that's really interesting to think of the Menhaden possibly coming in and filling in the gap that the declining numbers of herring have left behind. Is that, um, is that something that could happen in a way that sticks and becomes kind of the new normal? It could, it could. Um, I, the thing is that we're not, as of right now, now again, un unfortunately, this study sort of ended just as the, the Menhaden abundance was really ramping up, but we're actually going to continue that project this year with the Maine Department of um, Marine Resources. So that's a, that's a great new partnership that we have with, um, with Maine DNR. And so we're going to, we're hopefully going to capture what's going on now when the abundance of the of pogies is really high. But when Sammy did her thesis, while the Menhaden were increasing in the diet over the two years that she conducted the study, they weren't a really big substantial part of the diet yet. Um, and that could be for a couple of reasons. It could be a sampling bias. It, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that might not be the case. The other thing that happens too with tunas is when you hook them or you catch them even with a harpoon, um, a natural instinct is for them to regurgitate. So sometimes you lose what's in the stomach uh, and you don't even know that you lost it. Uh, so, so again, there, there can be some sampling biases there as well. But and strictly speaking, from an energetics perspective, in other words, how much energy is in that animal, for sure, Menhaden could fill, could potentially fill that gap. Whether or not the distributions overlap enough um, is another question, but I think that they do uh, in many cases. So interesting. Um... Is there anything else that I should have asked you that we haven't talked about yet? The only thing that I would emphasize is that the reason this work is so successful is because of the, of the partnerships we have and the support we get from the commercial and recreational fisheries that we deal with. Um, it's really been nothing short of fabulous. Um, you know, we have boats and commercial dealers that up and down the coast of the of the, the East Coast of the United States, rather, you know, they bring heads in for us, they save us samples, they freeze samples for us, and it's just really been an amazing partnership. And they are really the reason why we've been as successful as we have been, and we've been able to, to, to provide as much information as we have. You know, without that, without that component, without the industry, we don't have anything, you know, because it, it's 
you're trying to sample a fish that, you know, can, can go from one side of the Atlantic to the other in 50 days or less or 30 days. I mean, you know, we know bluefin can go from Cape Cod to the Bay of Biscay in like 35 days. So that's really the, the linchpin for, for everything and, and how successful we've been. So I just wanted to, you know, recognize them and uh, they go to great lengths, <laughs> I would say, to, to, make the, to make it successful. So it's been really good. That's great. Thank you so much. This has been yeah. so interesting to talk with you about all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. And, and if anytime you have questions or the audience has questions, they can feel free to reach out to me. I'm always willing to answer questions for people. That was Walt Golett, an assistant professor at the University of Maine School for Marine Sciences and lead of the Pelagic Fisheries Lab at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. Hopefully, this show gave you, our listeners, lots to think about when you're looking out to sea this summer and spot a darkened patch of ocean underneath splashing waters and tiny flipping tails, all telltale signs of a school of pogies coming through. We've come to the end of our hour today on Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio, and I wanted to thank our three guests for helping us make sense of the impacts of the return of pogies, a.k.a. Atlantic Menhaden, to Maine's waters and Maine's fishermen. Thanks so much to our guests for sharing their insights, including commercial fisherman Devin Campbell out of Booth Bay Harbor, commercial fisherman Dave Horner out of Southwest Harbor, and marine scientist Walt Gullett from the University of Maine and the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. Thanks also to Dana Morse, Julia Cardoso, and Justin Stevens for helping with this show. Have a great weekend, everyone. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good